And so when God comes to the Israelites when they're enslaved in Egypt, and he says, I'm going to rescue you out of slavery. I'm going to take you into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's a way of saying a land of richness and wealth and abundance. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to deliver you in impossible ways and bring you into not only freedom, but into a fullness of life that you have never even imagined. And the Israelites say, sounds good. Actually, they don't. They say that sounds scary. But eventually, they get convinced that it's a good thing. And so they leave by faith with God, and they enter into the promised land. And today concludes our series in the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers is, is the Hebrew name for it is Bemidbar, which means in the wilderness. The, the Hebrew people call this book the in the wilderness book. And the whole book is about the 40 years they spend in the wilderness. And so somehow the Israelites find themselves on this wilderness journey, a long wilderness journey. They don't arrive where they are headed very quickly. And after a period of time, there's disappointment with God, and God's disappointed with them. And they discover you can take the people out of Egypt, but it's hard to get Egypt out of the people. And they have a constant clashing with God. They constantly insist on God doing things their way because clearly they know what it's like to actually live this life and God might not know. And so, and we see over and over again repeated rebellions of Israel against God. They are not experiencing the kind of good life that they had hoped. They are not experiencing the kind of shalom, the peace, completeness, and wholeness of the good life that God talked to them about. They are not experiencing the beauty and the harmony of the good life. And I wonder, for some of us, if perhaps we too started off good with God. God rescued us out of a desperate situation. We were very aware that we were in bondage and now we aren't. We're very aware that God says, I'm going to bring you on a journey, and you're excited about your freedom. You're eager to start your new life with God. You're eager to discover, what, to discover what it means to have your identity shaped by God rather than your identity shaped by your past or your bondage, like the Israelites. And yet, maybe like the Israelites, you found it's a long journey to the promised land. There's a lot of desolation along the way. There's some dry places Perhaps God is moving slower than what you think he should. And perhaps sometimes you do things to try to speed up the things that you think God should do faster. And maybe, like the Israelites, perhaps sometimes you find yourself obeying God and sometimes resisting and rebelling from the God who promises to lead you into the good life. Has anybody been there? And today, with it being our final week in Numbers, we've journeyed in the last six weeks, I, I have like two more sermons to do in this sermon series that I'm not going to get to do, so I don't know. Sometime you're going to get two more sermons on the book of Numbers because I've got, there's, got, there's so much in this book that we, I wish we could cover. But we are concluding our time of journeying through the book of Numbers, and this book is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the five books of the Torah. And the Torah, of all five books, they all talk about the building up of the people, the engagement in slavery, the deliverance out of slavery, the deliverance to the promised land, but none of the books of the Torah actually bring the Israelites into the promised land. That is yet to come and will happen in other books of the Bible. The, book, the, the Torah, the, five, for the first five books of the Old Testament, is a story of becoming. 
It is a story of identity. It's a story of who the people of God are, where they have come from, who they are called to be, and who God is forming them into becoming. This is about a people who have a new identity. And it's about how they started off in Eden, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, how sin entered the world, and then how God has begun his cosmic rescue plan to begin a journey back toward the Eden life that he had designed for people from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. From the day that sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree, from that day forward, God has poured everything into bringing humanity back to Eden. So, when God comes to the people of Israel, and he says, hey Israel, let's get out of Egypt, let's, and let's get Egypt out of you, it begins an epic journey, an epic journey of, from bondage into the good life that God has for us. So today, in our final week in the book of Numbers, I'm just going to give you a quick summary of what happens in the rest of the book. Now, last week I told you we were going to finish talking about Balaam. I got a little confused. I thought we had another week in the series than we did. So we're not, but here's what happens with Balaam. I'll just give you the short story. So not only does Balaam end up blessing the Israelites instead of the cursing that the king of Moab wants him to do, he blesses them not once, not twice, not three times, but a total of seven times. He gives seven blessings to Israel, this sign of complete blessing. But we know that Balaam is speaking because the Lord compels him. It is not because Balaam is speaking because he has goodwill toward the Israelites or because he is even a good person. In fact, the rest, the book of Numbers goes on to say about what a terrible person he is and how after that period of blessing, he actually goes back to the people of Moab and he tells them how to ensnare Israel in sin. And it, beca- it begins this whole thing about sexual immorality, and you can read about it if you want to. There's lots of drama in the Bible. And um, Balaam is the one who leads the Israelites into a, a, this last big, huge, final seventh rebellion against God. And then it also goes on to tell how God commands them to that Balaam needs to be killed. It's a whole big drama. Balaam is not talked about well in the rest of Scripture. So so that happens in the rest of the book of Numbers. Also, in the last couple chapters of Numbers, we have a second census. You will remember that the book of Numbers began with a census counting the people. That's why we, in our English language, call the book of Numbers Numbers. There's a second census, and the significance of this is to say, this is the second generation. That first generation that had been brought out of Egypt, the, the first generation that they were the people who came out of slavery, you know the story because you've been traveling with us the last few weeks, but, but uh, because of a consequence for their sin, they were all going to be dying off. And we have here now the second generation, the children of the original people who are going to enter into the promised land. We have also at this point in scripture, Moses, who is prepared to die, and then God set, sets, okay, this is your successor, this is who's going to take your place, And then we come to a little story that's just a a nice, it seems like a nice little story about a group of young girls. And that's what we're going to look at today. A passage about a group, a family, the daughters of a man named Zelophehad. Now these five daughters of Zelophehad, we, we don't hear about them earlier in scripture. This is the first time we're reading about them. And there are five daughters. Their names are Mala, Noah, Hagla, I don't recommend using that one for a daughter. Hagla, Milka, and Tirza. 
And we know that they were most likely young. The Bible doesn't say that they were young, but the Bible tells us that they were unmarried. And since people married young, often as older teenagers back in that day, probably this was a group of five sisters who were unmarried teenagers or, or maybe older elementary type age kids. We know from the scripture that their father Zelophehad has passed away. We know that there is no brother in the family. The scripture doesn't say anything about their mother, but if there is a mother in the picture, then the mother is a widow, and we know that the life of a widow is a very difficult life in the peop- with the people of Israel. The, the widow life means you don't have a, a regular way of making money. You aren't able to inherit land or property. There's no one to care for you financially because it was a patriarchal culture, and that was how things functioned. If you didn't have a man in your life, a, a husband or a son, or a brother taking care of you, then you, you were kind of just destitute, and that was how it was. So this is a problem for these girls. And these five daughters, they know they have a problem. And here's how the passage goes. We're in Numbers chapter 27, verse 1. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. Okay, so the daughters of Zelophehad are from the tribe of Manasseh. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached the entrance to the tent of meeting and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly. And they said... Our father died in the desert. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sins and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. Okay, so let's flush this out a minute. These five daughters, they know they have a problem. They've got several problems. For one thing, they, are, they know that they're part of the second generation. They know that this first generation is dying out, and they know that if their mother is still alive, that she's not going to be alive for much longer, and they're going to be orphans soon. They also know what it's like to live the life of the vulnerability of the widow's life. They're vulnerable. They don't have a way to take care of themselves, and they don't like it. They want this to be different. This is not the Eden life. This is not the promised land kind of living. Apparently, God delivered their parents out of slavery, but this kind of existence, this isn't what they want either. Further, they knew that once they were going to get to the promised land, land would be divided up according to tribe, and that the tribe of Manasseh would go here, the tribe of Judah would go there, and they knew that once they came into that promised land, because there was no head of the family, they would have no place to go. And so here they are, on the edge of the promised land, and life isn't looking so good for them. Now, this isn't in the Bible, but I just kind of, I kept thinking, how, how did this come about? I'm, I, I'm the oldest of five kids, and the, we have, I've got four, three sisters and then a brother at the end. And I just kind of, in, in, my, in my world growing up, whenever there was something that we wanted to solve like this, we would call a Haunts Girl meeting, and, and we'd have it up in the bathroom. We'd shut the door because that was where we could get away from our parents. And we'd call a meeting. This is, my brother was so much younger, he wasn't part of this thing. Um, he was born when I was 13. So we'd, we'd call a Hans girl meeting. We'd go and we'd sit up and we'd shut the door and we'd sit in our 1970s decorated teal and brown bathroom and we would solve the problems of the world. And I imagine these girls sitting around discussing the problem. Maybe saying things like, 
listen, sisters, we've, we've got a problem. Life is already hard without a man to provide. What's going to happen when we lose our land too? When we get into the promised land, there's going to be nowhere to go. Oh, the promised land will be better. But, but will it be better? We're not going to have anywhere to go. Well, yeah, well, well Dad, let, let's talk about Dad for a minute. Yeah, well, Dad, I wish Dad were here. Well, he died because he was part of this other generation, and, and then maybe one of the sisters said, well, at least he wasn't part of Korah's rebellion because those are the people that got swallowed up by the earth because they were, like, super sinful. Dad was just, like, regular sinful, like everybody else. And so at least he wasn't as terrible as all the other people who are sinning. And, and he was, like, a regular old death of the first generation. Why should we be punished by not having land when Dad wasn't one of the, like, really bad guys? It's not fair. It's really not. Someone should do something about this. What do they expect people to do if they've got a family of daughters? Does this mean that we're going to get shut out of all the blessings of the promised land? It's supposed to be this great place, and are we not going to be able to participate in any of it? Someone should do something. And then some little sister, my guess is the youngest, says, let's go talk to Moses about it. If it's like any other normal group of, of sisters, there's someone else in the family who's saying, no, that's not a good idea. Moses would never listen to us. But someone else says, yeah, actually, she's got a point. We should go talk to Moses. Come on, let's go. Let's go over to the tabernacle. We know that Moses stands outside the, the entrance to the tent of meeting and has meetings. Let's go. We got to go talk to him about this. Let's go tell them that this law stinks and that it's not fair. And so they say, okay, let's go. And these five sisters decide they're going to go to the tabernacle. Numbers chapter 7, verse 1 says they approached the entrance to the tent of meeting. Can you just imagine them traipsing through the camp? And everyone's like, where are those daughters of Zelophehad going? And they're, they're, they're going with their chins up, with their heads held high. They are going to go, and they're going to talk with Moses. And it said they stood before Moses, Eliezer the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly. They march through this camp, determination in their eyes, and they come to Moses, the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly. And these girls present their case. These daughters of Zelophehad are already starting to participate in the Eden life. The first way they do this, letter A, is they demonstrate courageous faith that God's blessings are for them too. The culture tells them these blessings aren't for you, and they say, that doesn't seem like God. I believe God has blessings for me. And church, some of you need to have this kind of faith of the daughters of Zelophehad. <laughs> I'm having trouble. Zelophehad. Some of you need to have this kind of faith too, this belief that God's blessings are for you, that the good life that God invites us to and that God is forming in us is not just for the other people who are part of the majority culture. It's for you. And some of you need to believe with these daughters, this faith, that God has blessing for you too. And with the faith of children, they believe this. And so they come. They come to Moses and Eleazar and the leaders and all these people. And they say, they speak up. And they say in, in verse 3, Our father died in the desert. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. I think it's interesting. They don't come here saying, 
we deserve this land. They don't come saying, we're so good that we deserve it. They come understanding and acknowledging that God has pronounced judgment, and that's why their father's dead, and they accept it. The second way that these daughters participate in the Eden life is letter B. They understand and accept God's judgment as just. Here's what you don't hear. You don't hear in them a bitterness and a resentment to God for the death of their father. They accept it. They say, yep, God gave a consequence to all of the unfaithful people, and our parents were among them. It's an acceptance of the of the, the shortcoming of their father. They don't defend him. They simply state the facts. We have a problem. But they do point out he wasn't part of the rebellion of Korah. So would you consider this case? And they say we need our property. We need our land. We want to be able to flourish. Can this happen? And I think it's very much to Moses' credit that he pays attention to them. He doesn't just blow them off and say, oh, this is the law, this is how it works. He doesn't just say, oh, these little girls, what do they know? They're just women. It's to Moses' credit that he, he says, I'll go ask God. And he goes and he asks the Lord, and the Lord says, actually, they're right. Verse 5 says, So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives, and turn their father's inheritance over to them. Say to the Israelites, If a man dies and leaves no son, turn his inheritance over to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to be a legal requirement for the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. Here's the last way that the, the girls participate in the Eden life. Letter C, they want the good life that God has promised. They have a desire for it. By faith, they believe that what God offer, is offering them is good, and they say, we want a part in that. Church, are our hearts attuned to wanting goodness from God? Are, do we want the good life that God's promised? Do, do we believe that he truly has invited us into it and that it's for us too? And do we want the goodness that he promised, or are our eyes set elsewhere? So the Lord says, Moses, they're right. Let's adjust the law. This is a pretty amazing thing. Women can hold property. This is new in the ancient Near East. This is not done in all of the cultures around them. Israel was part of the, the ancient Near Eastern culture that was patriarchal. This, all of us are immersed in a culture. We've all been raised and grown up in a culture. This was the culture they were raised and grown up in. God always works within culture, and then he redeems what of culture is not according to his kingdom, and that's what he's doing here. This is a shocking and completely countercultural thing. This is not how their society is functioning. And interestingly enough, this is Numbers chapter 27. There are a few more chapters in the book of Numbers. And then things come up again with the daughters of Zelophehad 
In the very last chapter of the book of Numbers, the very last chapter in the book, Numbers chapter 36. So some sort of time has passed, uh, maybe just a a few weeks, we're not exactly sure, but everybody finds out about this, of course, and that their tribal leaders, the tribal leaders of the, the clan of Manasseh, are disturbed with this. They're not exactly sure how this is gonna work out. Perhaps they have some questions. Perhaps they, they're just a little unsettled. What does this actually mean practically for us? And so the story continues in Numbers chapter 36, verse 1. The family heads of the clan of Gilead, son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, who were from the clans of the descendants of Joseph, came and spoke before Moses and the leaders, the heads of the Israelite families. Okay, so now, now that if you didn't catch all that with all those words, all those tribal leaders from the tribe of Manasseh are now there themselves coming to the entrance to the tent of meeting. Verse 2, they said, When the Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance to the Israelites by lot, he ordered you to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Now, suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes. Then their inheritance will be taken from our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us will be taken away. When the year of Jubilee for the Israelite comes, their inheritance will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry, and their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of our forefathers. So, so what's going on here is these tribal leaders are coming, they're worried, and they're saying, practically, how is this supposed to work? Because if these daughters gain the property and then they marry somebody who's part of a different tribe, the way that our system works is then that property then start, belongs to that other tribe and then their husband takes over. And so we're going to lose the land that's supposed to be given to the tribe of Manasseh. Numbers 36, verse 5. Then, at the Lord's command, Moses goes back to the Lord, Moses gave this order to the Israelites. What the tribe of the descendants of Joseph is saying is right. This is what the Lord commands for Zelophehad's daughters. They may marry anyone they please as long as they marry within the tribal clan of their father. So they have to marry within their, their group. Verse 10, so Zelophehad's daughters did as the Lord commanded Moses. Zelophehad's daughters, Mala, Tirzah, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah, married their cousins on their father's side. That's a topic for another day. Don't get worried about that. <laughs> Verse 12, They married within the clans of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in their father's clan and tribe. These are the commands and regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Interesting passage, and that is how the book of Numbers ends. Why is this such a significant story? Why does this passage even matter? I mean, it's kind of a neat, it is a neat story about the, the, the breaking of barriers for women. That's certainly something that we see here. But I think it goes even deeper than that. Why is the situation significant? Three reasons why. Letter A, God is restoring his original design for men and women. God is restoring his original design for men and women. Now, I I was reading in a commentary this week on this passage, and the first thing that this commentator said was, 
this is such a, a modern experience. This is, this is a modern thing that the Bible's just ahead of its time, and it's this, it's this, this modern idea about women having equal rights as men. That is not what's going on here. God's original design was for equity between male and female. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, when God created man, he created hu humanity in his image, and it says male and female, he created them. Both male and female created in God's image. God is not male, God is spirit, and man and woman are both created in the image of God. And he says to Adam and Eve, he says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over all the earth. And he gives them a co-regency, a co-authority. They are supposed to have co-leadership over the creation. If you go back to Genesis, that's what's there at the beginning of Genesis. God blessed them. God made them fruitful. He created them to co-rule over the creation together. So what happens? Why don't we have this? Why is this messed up? Why do we have patriarchal culture? Why do we have hierarchy? Why do we have such, such conflict and clashing with roles of male and female? Well, it goes back to Genesis 3, the whole eating the fruit from the, the forbidden fruit from the tree. And it's at that point that that brokenness comes between male and female. In, in the, the Genesis account, in the Garden of Eden, God says as part of the consequence there's going to be a hierarchy that enters. And it, it, what the scripture line says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And we see here, there's this, this, this disunity that enters, this, this lack of equity that then comes in as a result of the fall. This doesn't mean it's God's design, this means it's a consequence of the fall. Ever since we have been wrestling with this kind of conflict. We have been wrestling with this kind of relationship that is unequal and unfair and not God's design. If you're part of my life group on Wednesdays, we're gonna dig into this in a couple weeks. God then works from this point on to enact his epic rescue plan, his rescue plan that is to restore creation, restore the original Eden, that includes the restoration of men and women as co-image bearers of God, men and women as having shared authority in this world, among other things, all the other things that he's also restoring. And so when Zelophehad's daughters are having this kind of conversation with Moses, when they're experiencing this, they're getting a taste of Eden. This is all a step toward redemption and a step towards God's restoration of his original design between men and women. This is not a modern interpretation. This is not a liberal interpretation of Scripture. This is not a new interpretation of Scripture. This is the original wisdom of God from the very beginning of Genesis, a return to God's original design for humanity. I think that we need to pay attention to this. I, in, uh, my, in, in my years of adulthood, as I have watched and processed my own call to ministry as a woman, and I've sought to understand how marriage relationships work between man and woman, I have also watched as our culture, I don't know, 20 years ago, I think we were making some good progress. I think we were learning some things. I think that there was an understanding of the, the trajectory of Scripture was for partnership between man and woman in marriage, partnership between man and woman in ministry, 
And with all of the cultural dynamics and all of the shifts that you know our, our society has been going through in the last two, three years, one of the significant ones that I'm really quite concerned about is this message of subordination of female under male. Now, the Bible does talk about subordination, but it talks about it in the context of mutual submission. It talks about a submission of husband and wife together sub mutually submitting to one another. I'm very concerned about this, about the kind of teaching that's all over the internet. I saw it in the news this week about, in a, I think it was on NPR, it was a secular news source that was talking about a person who was teaching as a Christian about the subordination of women to men. This is very alarming. It is not the gospel. It is not the message of scripture. We need to be on alert and we need to be aware that what we believe about the partnership of men and women in ministry and in marriage and as human beings is not a new or liberal or thing that we've invented or kind of extrapolated from scripture, but it's something that goes back to Genesis chapter one and God's original design for his humanity. second reason why this is significant. The second reason why this story of Zelophehad's daughter is just this, this little story. Why, why does it matter? Letter B, I think it teaches us that the Old Testament law is true, but it's not the final word. I find it so interesting because here's what happens. The daughters go to Moses and they say, we know this is the law, but we don't, we don't really like it. And then Moses goes to God and God says, yeah, actually they're right. It is the law but they're right, so we're going to change the law. What do you think about that? It, it reminds us of a few chapters earlier. Perhaps you'll remember, we, we briefly mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but there was uh, a thing about Passover, and they were saying, the people of Israel were saying, we know the Passover is the most important thing for us to do. It's, it's our biggest celebration, and we know that you have to like, be clean, like ritually clean in order to participate in the Passover, but what do you do if you're not? Like, what do you do if someone in your family dies and then that makes you ritually unpure, if, uh, unclean, because you had a family member die and you have to touch a dead body and all that. So does it mean that we just like can't participate in the Passover? And the Lord says to Moses, actually, they're right. And so, um, and so then the Lord gives them further instruction about the law. So what we see happening here, do you think that the Lord is surprised that perhaps he made a mistake when he was putting the law together or that he maybe didn't fully understand everything that was going on? Do you think that the Lord just didn't know? I think that what we see here is that the Torah, even from the beginning of God giving it, was not a perfect expression of the ideal will of God for all times and all people everywhere. That doesn't make it not true. It just means that it's not the final word. And so when Jesus then in the New Testament is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches from the law and he says, here's a law, and then he digs in more fully. You have heard that it was said, but I say, and then he, he says, you can't just do this one thing, you've got to do this harder thing. You've got to like love everybody. And Jesus, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Let's read that out loud together because I want you to understand the relationship of the law to us today. Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Later on in the New Testament, we see the apostles, the, the believers in Jesus, wrestling with how do we include Gentiles into the Christian community? Because up to that point, the Christian community had been Jewish. And these Jews, they had the Torah, and they knew about circumcision, and they knew about like eating the right foods in order to be clean before God, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And so they're wrestling with what do we do with these Gentiles who want to follow Jesus too, but who also are not Jewish? And if they would have been stuck with a narrow view of understanding the law and taken pieces of the Torah, they would have said, oh, the Torah says you must be circumcised, the Torah says you must eat these things. But then they're challenged to look at the whole of Scripture more deeply. And they see, they're reminded that when God came to Abraham, the message to Abraham was that all nations, Abraham, will be blessed through you. That the blessing of the Lord is for all people on the earth. That it's for everybody. And it's, th- it's, by, it's not that they're doing away with Scripture. It's that they're seeing more of it that's already been there. They're not creating new laws. They're not making up new things. They're seeing the truth that has been there from the very beginning. This was God's design all along. This is significant because the Old Testament law is true, but not the final word, and we need to remember that. The third and final reason why this, this situation with Zelophehad's daughters is significant is that it shows us that all of God's work is always a return to Eden. I think this is a fun passage because it talks about these courageous girls and this amazing shift in law that these courageous people were able to do. And I like how God says, there's a path, there's a way. And through scripture, there's always been a trajectory of God raising up women. We see that over and over again. I love that. But this story is bigger than that. The story is good news, not just for women, but for men. The story is good news for all of us. This story shows us that every single thing that God has ever done since the fall and that God is doing into the future is always a return toward Eden. God's intention, God's work, is for us to be in his presence, to restore the Eden that was lost. The Eden when he used to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, the personal presence of God, to restore that to you. His intent is to restore the shalom, the peace, the completeness, the wholeness, the abundance of life. We've talked about these connections between Torah and Eden over and over again through this series. Because the book of Numbers, we are meant to see, from the biblical authors, we are meant to see parallels between Numbers and Eden over and over again. And it's not a coincidence that in the Adam and Eve story, they're given they're supposed to share responsibility for the land. And it's not a coincidence that here on the cusp of going into the promised land, we have a reminder, we have this story about the daughters of Zelophehad who are wanting to rise up and take authority, rise up and share responsibility for the land. Not a coincidence. This is mirroring the entry into the new Eden. It's, mirror, it's teaching us that we should be looking for this new creation that God wants to do. 
God's on a mission to restore us. You might be stuck in the Bamid bar in the wilderness. You might feel like you are spending 40 years in a dry and desolate place. You might be stumbling over your rebellions and just how the book of Numbers talks about seven rebellions that uh, you might be in your like fourth one. You've still got a lot more to go. You might be wandering around in your wilderness, but here's what you need to know. That longing that you have for more, that's from God. That longing that you have for wholeness, that longing you have for a, a restored understanding of male and female, that longing that you have for flourishing in the land, that's from God. That's the heart of Eden that is in us that God has designed us for. We were made for it, and God is restoring it. Sometimes we can only see the thirst that we have because there's no water. Sometimes we can only see the anger that we have against other people, like what, what people had in the book of Numbers. They had anger and dissatisfaction with one another. Sometimes we get so focused on those things. But today I just want to encourage you to lift your eyes up, to see the bigger picture, because we're part of a bigger thing that God is doing in history. The promises of God established from Abraham on. The promises of God are for your flourishing and for your hope. And I want to say to you, don't give up. Don't give up. Follow him faithfully. Say yes to coming out of Egypt. Let God lead you. Calm your rebellion and surrender that and submit that before God and say, God, I will follow you. 1 Peter 2.9 and I'll end with this today. First Peter 2.9 reminds us of who we are. As Christians, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's you a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If you're a child of God, that's who you are. Would you bow your heads? If you are a follower of Jesus, would you just tell yourself, this is my identity. I'm a child of God. I belong to Eden. I am chosen. He is with me. He wants me. And if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, maybe, I'm sure there are some of you here today. Here's what you need to know. You were also designed for Eden. You were made for more. And what is broken God is on an epic rescue plan to fix. He asks that you simply come to him, that you follow him in humility and in obedience. But he's got more for you. If you, wherever you are in your faith journey, if you would just say, I just want more of the blessing of God in my life. 
If, if the Lord has just kind of stirred that up in your heart today, you don't, you don't all need to stand, but if, if, if the Lord's kind of just stirred your heart saying, I was made for more. I want this blessing. I want this good life that God's called me to. Would you just stand and say, God, I want it. God, I want it. God, I want it. I want more. Fill me, God. Lead me. Change me. Adjust me. But I want more. Amen. Would you please stand where you are? We're going to sing a song about the faithful promises of God. And as we do so, this is the way that Jesus made it possible. This is the way that Jesus made it possible for us to be made right with God and to enter into the Eden life through his broken body on the cross and through his shed blood, the sacrifice for our sin. Amen. As we sing, please come and participate in the body and the blood of the Lord.